0: Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jason Rosenbaum of St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is...
1: Joe Manis, as
2: always.
0: <laughs> and our our very special guest who's appearing through the magic of radio in Jefferson City is...
2: State Representative Stacy Newman.
0: Thank you, Representative, for appearing on our show. Um, before we get to any hard-hitting questions, we always like to ask the people who we interview from the legislature just what their district is and which cities and type of people they represent. So that would be my first question to you.
1: And Uh, how you got into politics and where you went to high school.
2: And all those things, (laughs) yes. Well, I represent uh, District 87. That's in in St. Louis County. Um, I I border the St. Louis city line right there on the western side of Forest Park. Uh, My district includes all of Clayton, um, parts of University City, parts of Ladue, uh, parts of Richmond Heights. So basically, I go from south of Del Mar down to Highway 40, out to McKnight Road. So um, uh, I love my district. It is a, I uh, categorize it as a very educated district. I was going to uh, say,
0: that's a, that's a, there's some there's district. some very, Highly yes. educated, powerful people that live in their, your district. I mean, you could say that for every district, but you know, we're talking yeah. we're talking about Clayton and Ladue and Richmond Heights here. Well, but. and
2: I want to actually point out too, even though my district does include Washington University, uh, Fontbonne is there. Um, it, it, you know, regardless of, you know, how well educated you are, it's actually different income levels. And that's something that uh, I always want people to know that, you know, this is not a, a strictly a, a fluent district, but, you know, people, you know, we have all kinds of streets, all kinds of, of housing. And, but uh, I like the fact that most of the, the voters are actually, or constituents are, are educated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of your background and how you got into Missouri state politics, because Knowing you for a long time, you've had kind of a very intriguing, interesting road, um, you know, since you first ran in 2008, and and, and also some of your your re-elections have been dare we say interesting as well so tell me Newsworthy. a little bit tell me a little bit about yourself
2: uh, sure well um, i'm actually a retired flight attendant from transworld airlines i uh, took a buyout when i was pregnant with our daughter um, back in um, you know 1991 i flew for 14 years back when we referred to transworld airlines um, um, as the hometown airline i'm a native of of kansas city um, and, you know, went around the world and ended up in, in St. Louis uh, where I met my husband, and that was kind of the, the end of my, um, my migrating. Um, and like you said, I, I did run for office in 2008. Uh, my, uh, my path to actually, you know, to public office is – uh, again, the result of what my our daughter did when she was six years old. She went on the National Rosie O'Donnell show shortly after you know uh, the Columbine shootings,
1: um, no, no. And several
2: He's, other school shootings. Uh, she was six. She wrote to Rosie O'Donnell, asked to come on to talk about kids and guns. And when your six year old, who's in first grade, um, has the foresight to actually you know write a letter with her views and and actually uh, go on national television to to talk about her fears and uh what she wants us grown ups to do, it really propelled um myself, my husband Bert into uh stepping up and getting involved in terms of the whole gun violence prevention movement did you
1: have to fly to New York or oh yes
2: oh yes and it was uh, there was a lot of local media there was even some national media with her appearance on the show you know a local you know six-year-old girl talking about you know gun violence and this was um the week before the, the Millie Mom March which we had also uh had um committed to attending. I was working through uh, my congregation at the time, Temple Israel. We took a group of 60 people to Washington, D.C. on Mother's Day of May 2000 to march in the, at the time, the most historic, you know, march on Washington, you know, um, over 800,000 people with uh, 60 uh, cities on that same day doing similar rallies in terms of gun violence prevention. And just You know, with our daughter's actions and, uh, you know, the more that I was just immersed into the issue, um, you know, head on through her uh, made me realize that I needed to get involved. Um, At the same time, Missouri was going through the conceal and carry um, legislative fight after, you know, in 1999, the voters turned down the uh, the voter initiative. But, you know, there's more than one way to, you know, to, to make a law. And so the legislature took it up. Um, you know, in... Um, Wasn't it 2003? Right after that. I'm sorry, yes. Well, we act, they actually did it. I got involved in lobbying in the session of 2001. When I say lobbying, I was a stay-at-home mother. Um, all I knew that... Um,
1: I think that's when I first met you.
2: Yes, I think so, Joe. I think I remember. And uh, ran into another mom. We just kind of met through... Uh, you know, same similar circumstances. Uh, and we just began, you know driving to Jefferson City each week, teaching ourselves, you know, the legislative process, you know, how to lobby. and we were, um, you know, pretty committed. Um, that person actually is is my longtime colleague, State Representative Jeannie Kirkton. yeah, who I was gonna say. Webster. yeah, and that yes. was and
0: I believe that um, in two thousand and four when Jeannie Kirkton ran for Senate, a big issue in that race was Michael Gibbons' vote to override the conceal and carry um, uh, veto. And she didn't end up winning that race, but I think she came back either two or four years later, won a House seat, and she's pretty much been there ever since. Yes. So,
2: well, uh, and uh, yeah, there. So yeah, that's how Jeannie and I met, but actually, you know, 15 years ago. And it, um, this coming May will be the 15th anniversary of the Million Mom March. And so uh you know, again, you know, these issues are still at the forefront. We still have, you know, school shootings have, you know, totally increased in long, you know, with the, just the gun violence in our own city. But that's what all those, um, all that initial action 15 years ago, you know, through our daughter propelled me. And then, of course, when my legislative seat was, was vacant, um, I was, you know, ready to run.
1: Well, one thing I want to ask you about the gun stuff is that because... Even though it's been a serious issue for 15 years, actually, the gun rights crowd has actually made a lot of advances in Missouri uh, as far as getting certain laws or constitutional amendments passed. Uh, We can refer to the one last fall. What are your, I mean, do you feel like you've just, that you and some of your allies have just been just unable to um, get your message across? I mean, is it frustrating to see some of these things happen?
2: Well, of course, it's extremely frustrating because you know we're still seeing, you know, particularly in in St. Louis area, we're seeing our gun violence you know um, increase in terms of, of you know, not just inc- you know child incidents, you know, drive by shootings. I mean, all kinds of of. of Incidents that we, you know, classify as gun violence. I mean, it's and St. Louis isn't alone. You know, we're, we're seeing this increase across the country. So, yes, there is a matter of um, frustration, particularly in the Missouri legislature. However, we do know that the majority of people, particularly um, in, even in Missouri, are in favor of, say, for example, universal background checks requiring a background check on all, um, on all gun purchase. And knowing that 80% of Missourians have, are in favor of this, you know, the nationwide statistic is 91%, that there are very popular um, views in terms of, you know, gun violence prevention policy that we could be doing, but yet here in Missouri, as several other states, it's not just the gun rights group, it's the young lobby who have actually, you know, um, uh, prevented many of these measures from really becoming policy. And... In the last 15 years, I've really um, connected with not just people here in Missouri, but you know, people like myself, other legislators around the country who are working in red and blue states, you know, for you know, for the same reason. Um, and along that, I've also you know become close friends with actually gun violence survivors um, throughout the country. Uh, these are my people in terms of uh, who you know, survivors live this horror every single day and yet have committed their own lives to, you know, preventing it, you know, preventing the statistics from rising. One of the
0: things that I've noticed in the last five or 10 years is not only is there a complete erosion of Republicans that support, quote, unquote, gun control or restricting firearms, but you've also seen a situation where some prominent Democrats like Attorney General Chris Coster, are also trying to cultivate support among the, quote, unquote, gun rights crowd. As I just mentioned with Joe, you know, he touted pretty heavily his NRA endorsement during his last reelection bid. Does that kind of hurt the cause of political figures like you that are trying to, to pass some sorts of, of bills like universal background checks? Like, how does that affect things for you?
2: Well, I think what it points out is the actual the power of the gun lobby. Um, you know, people, I think, are becoming much more aware of, uh, particularly in Missouri here, where we have, you know, few ethics laws and few uh you know, obviously we have unlimited campaign finance, et cetera. And people, I think, are getting very, very tired of, you know, that influence, particularly, you know, from gun manufacturers. So and I'm not going to really talk about it in terms of, you know, people in, you know, outside of urban suburban areas, what, how they feel that they must get elected. But at the same time, I work very, very closely with both uh, Kansas City and St. Louis, you know, the mayors, the police chiefs, the, you know, the, the prosecutors, you know, those who are dealing with, with, with gun fatalities, with gun crimes every single day. And so, yes, it has been a struggle um, in terms of educating those policymakers who are not in urban suburban areas that, um, you know, there is a – we're not talking about gun rights. We're actually talking about, you know, uh, ways to keep, you know, uh, firearms out of the hands of criminals and also how to, you know, prevent gun deaths.
1: Which brings up the um, – I think it's Amendment 5 – uh, was the one that passed last fall, which now, which had to do with uh, some gun rights. And now it's determined that it actually um, makes it more, aside from allowing open carry, um, it also is making it difficult for uh, law enforcement to prevent people with felonies from carrying firearms. There's been some cor- court decisions saying that People with felonies cannot be barred from carrying firearms. Do you know if there's any, I mean, are there any efforts in the General Assembly this session to try to correct some of that stuff, or do you feel you have to go back to a, for a constitutional amendment?
2: Well, I have no idea where it's going to happen. I mean, there, obviously, there is no effort in the in the House; nothing has been filed or even moved. And I know that the, you know, the bill sponsor, um, you know, Senator Schaefer, has made some public comments that yes, this this wasn't his original intention was to allow criminals, particularly you know felons, to you know not be um, you know uh, prosecuted based on their on their gun laws, uh, or their gun crimes. Uh, I think what this was was a you know was it was a clear pandering to you know the voters of the state in terms of you know this brand new and improved you know second amendment to our, our state constitution, and yet we we tried to warn the body we tried to warn the bill sponsor before this the unintended consequences particularly of you know our prosecutors from both you know St. Louis and Kansas City and how they were going to be able to or not prosecute you know criminals with these um, just in aim, you know, uh, you know, gun crimes. Uh, and again, this, this goes back to that, that whole, you know, the gun lobby and, you know, the convincing of people that this is not about taking away your weapons, but this is actually, we have got to change this conversation to saving lives because as you all are seeing and everyone's seeing, you know, our our gun violence is just exploding, Um, not just in the St. Louis area, Kansas City, and we're starting to see more, you know, gun incidents, you know, outstate. I mean, we're saying this around the country, too, and other states that are similar to us, what's it going to take? You know, we thought it was going to be Sandy Hook. We thought that, you know, those 20 little kids, um, and most of us remember our reaction when we heard I mean, I do, you know, the actual number of fatalities in Sandy Hook Elementary School, you know, shooting. uh, We thought that was going to actually spur lawmakers, you know, even on the federal level to 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 take a simple action in terms of you know just requiring you know background checks for all gun sales which again right now if you're buying your weapon through a federal uh gun dealer you're doing it it takes 90 seconds at the most you know if you don't have any you know gun crimes in your history then you're then it it doesn't stop you but if it does you're flagged and, you know, like I said, the majority of people want this. They believe this. They understand, you know, keeping uh, firearms from, you know, uh, criminals and those particularly of, of that have some mental health, you know, incidents should not also be those who are um, amassing endless amounts of firearms and ammunition. So, again, there's that dichotomy between 81% or 80% of Missourians versus, you know, uh, those who are running for office, trying to use this. And I think this is really a slap in the face to, you know, to those surviving families that have gone through these horrors. And, you know, we're not going to see gun violence, you know, all of a sudden stop as, you know, more and more um, guns, particularly illegal guns, you know, flood our streets. I mean, you talk to mayors in both St. Louis and Kansas City, this is their number one problem.
0: Was it a mistake for opponents of Amendment 5 not to mount like a large, expensive opposition campaign, like, was done against the right to farm bill? Was that a missed opportunity?
2: Well, possibly. I mean, I know that there's national, you know, um, you know gun violence prevention, you know, uh, organizations throughout the, the country that are working on these similar proposals in other states. You know, it's, you know, you look at Missouri, you look at our statistics in terms of how, how voters vote. Um, all these things cost money. And that, that's the sad thing is that we, you know, organizations have to beef up to spend millions of dollars to inform voters of things that are, you know, so dangerous like, like those measures were. And, you know, the money's not there.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to shift gears to another issue that you've been involved in for years now, which is. A,
1: and which is involved in the legislature this session. Which
0: is a government issued. A voter identification uh, bill, which yeah, has been, idea, yes. you know, this has kind of been an issue that has gone through the legislature for pretty much from when I started covering the legislature in 2006, probably before. You've been one of the most outspoken opponents against this policy. Kind of tell me why you feel this shouldn't happen and what do you see the lay of the land in the legislature this time around?
2: Well, you're right in terms of, you know, Missouri has been dealing with this issue actually for 10 straight years. Um, In 2006, you know, it became law and and, um, actually then was litigated in in the, you know, uh, state Supreme Court. uh, who threw this out as being unconstitutional based on our state constitution, which has a stronger – position on, you know, the right to vote than even our federal constitution. Uh, My husband was one of those uh, attorneys that actually contested this. So I knew a little bit about the issue just, just through him. So when I uh, came into, you know, um, into office, actually 2010 was my first session. And you know the bill was back up for debate, and there was very few people in my caucus who, you know, were willing to take this issue on. And I, I knew it just because of my husband's work, and um, I knew that it was something that uh, uh, I had to fight. So I look at uh, voter identification would require. Um, uh, a state-issued photo ID in order for voters to vote. Uh, Sounds great in theory. Um, If you just ask that question to most people, they'll say, sure, yeah, that sounds reasonable. But when you ask them also, you know, should that prevent, you know, current voters from being able to vote, you know, the answer is obviously no. Uh, We have many people who do not have access to a state-issued photo ID, you know, commonly known as a driver's license for many reasons. This uh, this proposal would affect, you know, the elderly, disabled, you know, even college students, out-of-state college students would be required to get a, you know— Missouri driver's license to to be able to vote while they're here, um, you know, women, uh, those of uh, low income, actually, people who uh, rely on public transit and don't have a need for having a, a driver's license. The public, you know, doesn't understand at this point, um, because again, people think, oh, you should have a, you know, a, a photo ID to, to fly an airplane, to do all these you know, yeah, and that's been a common. Been a common yeah, not
0: to interrupt. That's yes. been a common argument among Republicans. We were going to play a clip, but we're having a, some technical difficulties on that. But I mean, that's the argument they bring up all the time that you know you have to use a driver's license for all these other things that you do. Having it for voting seems to make sense. So how do you kind of respond to that that line of argumentation?
2: Well, that's really kind of an affluent argument. We have, you know, these uh, people that we already know—current, longtime voters that we already know—do not have a a state-issued photo ID. Uh, We know we know who they are, um, actually. And again, they're the disabled, the elderly, those of low income. And the reason they don't have it is they don't need it. They don't need it for their lives. They don't open bank accounts, and they don't fly on airplanes. Um, They don't drive a car because they – you know, because of – you know, being low income, they don't they don't need it, and the reason another reason is that people don't have access to those documents that are required to get that state issued photo ID. So that argument of let's just give everybody a state issued ID sounds great until you actually look at the at the fiscal note. Um, you know, but it costs you know millions to make sure that people have that, um, but really that's not the intent. Of this legislation, this, this these proposals actually about suppressing the vote because we have estimated about 250 thousand Missourians do not, um, like I said, current voters do not have that state issued photo ID, and the a lot of reasons is they can't get those underlying documents. Yeah,
1: I, I want to interrupt here. I just wanted to explain to our listeners what we're talking about. This especially affects women. Um, to get a driver's license, and this has been true since uh, the 9/11 attacks. Okay, if you go in to get a driver's license, and uh, and if your name has changed because you've been married, you have to bring in your not only your birth certificate to get the driver's license, you have to bring in your marriage license. I mean your yeah your your marriage document from when you got married in order to get a Driver's license. If you can't get the driver's license, then under this law, then you wouldn't be able to vote in effect because most of the photo ID laws require it would either have to be a driver's license, a passport, uh, a, a military ID. Now, some states are allowing gun, certi- uh, you know, concealed carry certificates. That is not necessarily true in Missouri. Uh, student IDs would not be allowed in the Missouri laws. I mean, in the Missouri proposals as they now stand., yeah. some states would allow that
0: now we we had House uh, Majority Leader Todd Richardson on a few weeks ago, and he mentioned that there was an amendment placed on by Representative Shemed Dogan of Baldwin that would have the state pay for a lot of these supporting documents. I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said. I'm sure that that was a a point of contention during the House debate. but, What's kind of your your take on that argumentation that if you have the state pay for all these documents, it kind of mitigates the harm that some of the opponents of photo ID have?
2: Well, that was a very interesting amendment, and of course, that was a very interesting argument when you're, you know, when they want to say, well, sure, we'll have the state pay for it. Well, that would have to be appropriated, and number one, the, you know, the fiscal on that was again was in the millions. You know, as you know, our state budget just doesn't have, you know, just extra millions just lying around. So that would have to be appropriated. And then number two, um, the the amendment language was very unclear in terms of what about those documents that are needed to get that driver's license. It's not just about the money. It's those underlying documents that people can't uh, get access to. Those who have um, been born out of state or in another country, those who don't have a birth or certificate. Or if you were born
1: at home, especially Correct. if Correct. you're elderly and were born at home and there was no birth certificate issued.
0: But I kind of want to cut a little bit to the chase here. I mean, we talk about this issue every year. There's a lot of excitement among a lot of Republicans for it. There's a lot of unexcitement among Democrats. I don't know if unexcitement is a word by the way but it just it, it never seems to get to the finish line it's almost like we're on a hamster wheel with this situation it, well, is, is that going to change yes. this year or are we just going to see like debate and not any action on it essentially
2: well i'm glad you're asking me because you know that i must be i'm the speaker of the house and i determine all. yes this. you are Spe- uh, speaker of the just. house
0: Stacey stacy newman the first the first democrat <laughs> yes, to that's preside me. Over I, I know everything 117 in the member house but i uh, continue <laughs>
2: Well, uh, it has been a very interesting um, 10 years. Um, and, you know, part of it was, you know, back in 2006 when the Supreme Court ruled it as unconstitutional. Now it becomes a two parter. For this to take effect in Missouri, you know, voters, again, we would have to amend our state constitution to allow it, number one. So it's a two parter. You know, it has to get on the ballot to, uh, and voters have to pass and it. And the governor does
1: not need to sign, is not in a position to sign or veto that legislation to get it on the ballot.
0: But he is in the he is in the position to sign or, or veto the actual statute that enforces it. And yeah. I think that right. I mean, basically as long as there's a Democratic governor, that's going to get vetoed every time. The question would be then, you know, are there votes to override the veto? Is there going to be a situation where the Senate filibusters that and they don't decide to use a previous question motion? It's all speculative, but there are some pretty, you know, strong roadblocks right now to getting this passed. Well, but
2: you're right. And but let me really point out though, it really doesn't matter the underlying bill which you know lays out how this would work if passed. Um, is actually mute on its face it's unconstitutional until we amend right. our constitution exactly. to exactly. allow that so it has to go to the vote of the people and as you remember last year we what we had nine constitutional amendments on um, you know both the August and November ballots that's what it's got to take again um, and so it's like a two-parter it's a you know it's a package deal and right now this year we uh, the bill has passed the house as it has every year you know this early in session um uh and it's sitting over um you know the senate version you know they have it hasn't moved as far um what happened this past year you know 2014 you know the, uh, the voter id proposals was used as a bargaining chip um in in the senate and uh, I don't expect, and that really, that's what kept it off the ballot in terms of it was bargained away for, you know, for um, other uh, things that I'm opposed to, and that was, you know, the 72-hour abortion restriction. Some of these proposals are are um, being litigated, they're being thrown out in certain states. Uh, we know that there are certain cases that are very, very close to making, um, you know, the Supreme Court uh, docket, uh, which will make it decide, you know, in every single state is voter ID, which we call... I call voter suppression, actually, you know, constitutional. So until we get a decision down from the federal court, uh, you know, their efforts will continue, particularly in red states like Missouri. We also know this is a almost a complete partisan issue um, in many legislatures that are passing it. It's, you know, it's a Democrat-Republican issue. We also know, too, that this is being uh, uh, really pushed by the American Legislative Exchange Council, you know, ALEC, which, per- you know, pushes many uh, conservative ideas that are fronted by, you know, big corporations – We also have on record of many Republicans um, in different states that have tried this uh, actually telling us on record that this is what they need to win. This is a a voter suppression effort. Um, And we know that because we know, you know, kicking off 250,000 current voters in Missouri, you know, telling them that they can no longer vote. And, you know, these are real people, this is really what, what it comes down to. They have said that they need voter ID proposals in Missouri to be able to win. Um, it's voter suppression. And in my view, we should be actually working to make voting more accessible, not restricting it.
0: So let's move on to a topic that's been on the thoughts of many Missouri political figures in the last month, and that's the death of Tom Schweick. Um It's kind of come into focus again because his longtime spokesman, Spence Jackson, also, d- killed also killed himself. Uh, a few days ago. And it's been a really tough month, I think, in Missouri politics because people who've been around this ecosystem for 5, 10, 15 years, I don't think we've really dealt with a, a, a death in this way, in this public of a manner. And
1: Suicides. I,
0: people are kind of dealing with it in their own way. But the reason I'm bringing it up to our guest right now is, you know, there's been a lot of tributes to... to former Auditor Schweik that were done by a lot of Republicans. There were especially poignant ones by David Barklage, Jay Barnes, even Ed Martin. But Representative Newman actually wrote something in her newsletter that I thought was especially noteworthy and was kind of a good jumping off point for a bunch of other things. So Representative, tell me kind of about your relationship with Auditor Schweik and kind of how you got to know him.
2: Well, um, uh, Tom Schweik was actually my constituent. Yeah, that's what I was I, say. He, he lives in my district, and we got to know each other, you know, just because I uh, was his state representative. Um, along with that, uh, uh, our daughters were, were were classmates. They went to high school together in Clayton and then actually uh, or at Mizzou together. Um, and, you know, that made more of a personal relationship, Um uh, every time I would, you know, uh, survive an election, I always received a call from Auditor Schweik, you know, congratulating me, and that was something that I always thought was, was, was very nice. It was very professional and it was very congenial in terms of, you know, regardless of our our party lines, you know, being able to. Um, you know, establish a relationship as basically as just people. And um, I did write in my newsletter after, you know, after his death, um, about the last conversation I had with him, um, just weeks before. And it was uh, before a, a, a budget hearing, I sit on a committee that actually hears testimony from the different statewide office holders and, you know, deal with, with their budget. And our last conversation, I thought, was very poignant. He, you know, was, had already announced he was running for governor. We talked a little bit about that. We actually spent time talking about our families. And I will we'll always remember how warmly he spoke of his daughter, how proud he was of her, you know, student teaching, you know, uh, back home and, you know, in Maplewood, Richmond Heights. And he just, it, it was just a very warm, neighborly um, relationship that we had. We would hug when we see each other because we both realized, yes, we were elected officials, but we were also neighbors. And um, I was always very proud of, you know, when his family moved back um, to town, when he, you know, ran for statewide office, that our community enveloped him um, and his family, um, not on a partisan basis, but on a neighborly basis. Right, right. And I think that's something that um, our community is known for, um, you know, because of, you know, being a, um, uh, you know, with our universities here at home, you know, we have a lot more, you know, transient people back and forth, you know, living here for a short time. And um, that was a, a relationship that I, I actually treasured with him. And so um, his his death, you know, hit me hard and hit um, those of us who, who knew him in that way really hard. Um, along that line, too, is we... Um, have a an, our own nephew had committed suicide this past September, an eighteen year old, um, in you know St. Louis County, and you know our family is still you know um, dealing and, and and mourning with that loss, and so to see someone else that I you know that we had relationships with, um, and again now with his aid, you know, uh, you know, committing suicide themselves, it is. Uh, Like you said, everyone is dealing with it in their own way. Yeah, and
0: I I was going to be my next thing to segue into because I think that the aftermath of of Tom Schweik's death and kind of the furor and argumentations that have been going around has been disquieting, to say the least. We talked it last week with John Hancock about the quote-unquote whisper campaign, which we went in depth and we were not really going to go into depth here. But I think one thing that I think has really bothered me in particular is you know suddenly when this situation happens now we're starting to have the conversation about you know has missouri politics gotten too negative or too nasty when over the last year plus i could point to many different situations where there were ads or argumentations that went way over the line and there could have been a situation where we could have paused and done that well beforehand now i just want to make clear I'm not saying that the nastiness had any link to, you know, Tom Schweig's death or anything, but it just seems like as a Missouri political community, there were opportunities for us to reflect beforehand and we just didn't do it. Is that kind of your impression as well or is, is, this, is this situation a good touchstone to talk about this?
2: Oh, most definitely. I mean, you know, you're, you're referring to, the, you know, the radio ad that most of us find, you know, it, it was pretty horrendous in terms of, you know, a, a clear personal attack on, you know, Tom Schweick as a candidate. Um, many of us in campaigns, I mean, I've gone, I've had my share. And yes, there are some that have been um, uh, really hard, let's put it that way. And I I think it's back to, I think I mentioned this earlier, it's back to Candidates and those who are supporting candidates again, you know, where are people can spend unlimited amounts of money here in Missouri to, you know, to to campaign and elect someone, and it's about winning at all costs. I mean, you know, back to, you know, the 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 gun amendment. Um, now we're seeing the results of that in terms of you know real lives and real situations, and when people are willing to spend unlimited amounts of money and do. Um, things that most of us would find extremely distasteful in order to to win office. I think it says a lot about our political climate. It says a lot about our state. And um, I was at, you know, uh, Auditor Schweik's funeral and, and heard, you know, uh, Senator Danforth's comments. And it, he was right. Words do matter and words do hurt. And uh, there has been no effort to actually, you know, introduce any kind of, you know, legislation that would actually rein in some of these, you know, um, campaign finance and even ethics issues. Um, But, you know, there's a professionalism. I was realizing there's a professionalism that we have in our legislature. We're not, you know, our House rules do not allow us to, you know, refer to each other by name. We have a decorum that we are expected to follow. And, that actually should be taking place, I believe, too, in our campaigns. Um, you know, there there's a point, and I think voters are telling us, I mean, just look back to the voter turnout, you know, in 2014, both August and, and November, when we had these vital issues on the ballot. Voters are being turned off by this. Um, we need voters to be part of our political process and to actually participate, um, not you know, by restricting them and and by turning them off, we need to bring them in. We need more people to actually consider running for office, not looking at this process of, oh, I could never do that. I would never expose my family to that. Well, what are we actually exposing our family to? I think we need to answer that question. And then, you know, those who are making a living, you know, um, this you know these these campaign businesses that actually, um, you know, spend these dollars on you know horrendous you know campaign ads and um, uh, you know mailers, you know they're profiting from this and yet we're talking about real people's lives, and it's 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 time um, as a woman candidate you know you're always uh, you're always really open or thinking about that in terms of how are they going to. You know my opposition. How are they going to portray me? Are they, um, you know, as a woman? they're you know, we're always being criticized on our appearance, on our, on our, you know, what we wear, how our, what our hair looks like. Um, and it's been an unru rule, you know, not to go after, you know, our families. Though we see those lines really blurred, and particularly in in Tom Schweik's case, you know, this ad going after his appearance. Um, I would think the majority of of Missourians. Uh, believe that that is wrong and we have you know we we need to actually demand from our candidates and their um their supporters and you know their campaign team uh, to stop this now,
1: the, the, i know there has been some behind the scenes discussions by some uh in both parties but i don't think they've done much discussion together about putting together some sort of commission or something just to kind of get candidates to voluntarily sign things as far as what they would um agree not to do. Uh, I talked to Senator McCaskill recently. She's pushing for a constitutional amendment to restrict campaign donations. But she also talked about the sharp attack ads that had been leveled against her over the last 10 years, her and her family. And so I know this is something on both sides. But so far, there there seems to be a lot of talk, but not a lot of action.
0: Right. And as I kind of alluded to before, I mean, the talk about Schweik's appearance was it didn't just come from that ad. I, I, I'm going to read just a quick blurb from an article that Steve Kraske wrote a year ago. Democrats also whisper that they think Schweik lacks a certain gravitas. His herky-jerky demeanor, quick twitches, and slight build remind a lot of folks of Barney Fife. Koster would be Andy Griffin in that showdown. And I'm not reading that to, like, disparage Kraske or any Democrats, but I heard a lot about that, you know, disparaging things about Schweik's appearance from both parties. And it just seems like, as I said before in that other question, that, you know, this has been happening for months, if not years, with this situation. And there was never a point where we stopped and said, maybe this isn't appropriate, essentially.
1: Well, and frankly, women candidates get attacked far worse. I mean, there's been jabs at various women candidates who I will not mention. For their appearance, or how they wear their hair, how much they weigh, or what kind of clothes they wear. So frankly, some of the stuff that was lobbed against Schweik was actually mild compared to what some women deal with.
2: And Joe, you're right. I mean, in fact, you know, I think in this presidential uh, campaign that's coming up, we're we're going to see this really elevated. Um, you know, more than what we've experienced. You know, in the in the past years, but to me, this comes back to the voters. Um, you know, voters so far have just been staying away. I mean, our, you know, our voter turnout is really, um, really sad in Missouri. And yet voters actually, in, in my mind, actually are in charge of this whole process. They can stand up and demand, people need to demand that, you know, campaigns are being run um, ethically. <laughs> and they're, uh, and it's no longer about this winning at all costs. I mean, there, there is a point, and I think people are, are tired of it. Um, you know, we're seeing real lives being affected. Um, and if this is not a wake-up call, just like, you know, many of these, you know, horrendous school shootings, if this is not a wake-up call, what is?
0: Yeah, so we're going to have to cut it short right there. We, we thank you very much for, for being on the show um, for, for all of our stories, you can go to STLPublicRadio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at J
1: Manis, That's J M A N N I E S. And
0: how would the the people around the state follow you on Twitter, Representative Newman? Uh,
2: yes, I'm on uh, both Twitter and Facebook, Stacy Newman, S T A C E Y, uh, Newman, N E W M A N. You also find me on my website or, and even on my, my, my house site. Absolutely. So, Well, thank you very much. It's been really a pleasure to talk with you both about issues that I'm very, very passionate about. And it's been
0: a pleasure to talk with you as well. And until next week, so So. long.